0: Chapter Fourteen The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians. Written from his own dictation by T. D. Bonner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. We went along without noteworthy occurrence until the following March when we moved from the western to the eastern side of what was at that time called Tongue River Mountain, one of the peaks of the Rocky Mountain chain. The buffaloes had receded from the environs of our old camping ground and had been attracted to the region whither we removed in consequence of the grass being in a more forward state. Our community numbered 10,000 souls, men, women, and children, together with an immense number of horses. In crossing the mountain, we found the snow to be of so great depth, being farther increased with a three days recent storm, that the mountain was impassable. In this severe journey, which occupied three days, we had 1,200 horses perish in the snow. Previously, the Blackfeet had stolen 800 head, and we were in no condition to follow them, as we were all engaged in packing up for removal. We reached the prairie, on the eastern side of the mountain, after a toilsome journey, and found good camping ground on Box Elder Creek. The morning following our arrival, we started on a surround, in parties of 50 and upward, as our whole population was without meat. I rode a pack horse, and three of my wives were with me, each leading a saddle horse. I had not proceeded far before I heard a noise that sounded very much like a war-hoop. I stopped my horse to listen. Those near me said it was a signal from one of the parties who had discovered buffalo and we proceeded on our journey. Soon, however, I heard the yell again, and I became satisfied there was something more than buffalo astir. I rode to a small eminence close by and descried a party of our hunters at a distance making signals for others to succor them. I turned back to my wives and dispatched two of them to the village for my war instruments. And then galloped on to ascertain the cause of the alarm. Not more than fifty of our warriors were then before me. I then learned that they had before them a party of one hundred and sixty Blackfoot warriors who had thrown themselves into an apparently impregnable fortress. It was a stronghold manifestly thrown up in some of nature's grand convulsions it would seem, for the very purpose to which it was now applied. It was a huge mass of granite, forming a natural wall in front of a graduated height, varying from 25 feet to 6 feet, the lowest part. It was solid and nearly perpendicular all round. There was in our camp a young Kentuckian named Robert Mildrum, naturally a brave fellow, though he seldom went out in the war parties. But when the village was assaulted, he always fought like a tiger. He was a good trapper and a skillful blacksmith, and had been out in the employ of the American Fur Company. I met him while we were surveying the enemy's stronghold. I said to him, Mildrum, if the adage is true, there is policy in war. These Indians make no question of our bravery. Had we not better resign to them the brunt of this encounter and not expose our lives in a cause that we have no concern in? How do you intend to act? As for me, said Mildrum, I must be in the fray. If we are to see any fun, I want my share of the entertainment. Well, said I, I shall endeavor to keep by you. The Indians had by this time assembled to the number of from five to seven hundred and were watching the fort indecisively, awaiting instructions from the chief. Many had succeeded in running and sheltering under the wall, while several had been shot in making the attempt. I ran to the wall to reconnoiter it and soon saw there were two ways in which it could be taken. One was by bombardment and the other was by storm. Bombardment was out of the question, as our heaviest caliber was a rifle-bore. I waited to see what steps would be taken. Longhair, the head chief of the nation, said, "'Warriors, listen! Our marrow bones are broken. The enemy has chosen a strong fort!' We cannot drive them from it without sacrificing too many men. Warriors, retreat! I replied, No! Hold! Warriors, listen! If these old men cannot fight, let them retire with the women and children. We can kill every one of these Blackfeet, then let us do it. If we attempt to run from here, we shall be shot in the back and lose more warriors than to fight and kill them all. If we get killed, our friends who love us here will mourn our loss, while those in the spirit land will sing and rejoice to welcome us there, if we ascend to them dying like braves. The Great Spirit has sent these enemies here for us to slay. If we do not slay them, he will be angry with us, and will never suffer us to conquer our enemies again. He will drive off all our buffaloes, and will wither the grass on the prairies. No, warriors! We will fight as long as one of them survives. Come, follow me, and I will show you how the braves of the great white chief fight their enemies enemy of horses exclaimed hundreds of the brave and impatient warriors who were crowded round me lead us and we will follow you to the spirit land accepting the charge i stationed a large body of those who were never known to flinch on one side of the position which i with my followers intended to scale i thus thought to engage the attention of the enemy until we made good our entrance, when I felt no longer doubtful of success. I then told them, as I threw up my shield the third time and shouted, HU-KI-HAI! They were to scale the wall as fast as possible and beat down whatever resistance might be offered them. I had divested myself of all my weapons except my battle-axe and scalping-knife, the latter being attached to my wrist with a string. I then made the signal, and when I raised the shout, Hu kee hai! the party opposite began to hoist one another up. When I sprang for the summit of the wall, I found that my women were holding my belt. I cut it loose with my knife and left it in their hands. I was the first on the wall, but was immediately followed by some scores of warriors. The enemy's whole attention when we entered the arena was directed to the opposite party, and we had time to cut numbers down before they were aware of our entrance. The carnage for some minutes was fearful, and the Blackfeet fought with desperation knowing their inevitable doom if taken. The clash of battle-axes and the yells of the opposing combatants were truly appalling. Many leaped the wall only to meet their certain doom below, where hundreds of battle-axes and lances were ready to drink their blood as soon as they touched ground. The interior surface of this huge rock was concave, and the blood all ran to the center, where it formed a pool which emitted a sickening smell as the warm vapor ascended to our nostrils. It was also a work of great difficulty to keep one's feet, as the mingled gore and brains were scattered everywhere round this fatal place. The blood of the crow and the Blackfoot mingled together in this common pool. For many of our warriors fell in this terrible strife. All was silent within a few minutes after we had gained an entrance. Victims who were making away with their bowels ripped open were instantly felled with the battle axe and stilled in death. The wounded were cared for by their friends, and the dead removed from sight. Upward of forty crows were killed, and double the number wounded. They were engaged on the side of the crows about twenty white men, and only one was wounded, though nearly all scaled the wall with the Indians. Mildrum was seriously injured by leaping from the heights after an Indian, but he soon recovered our spoils were one hundred and sixty scalps and an immense quantity of guns and ammunition a large amount of dried meats with arrows lances knives in great abundance here an incident happened with my little wife and mother worth mentioning they were seated outside and under the wall when owlbear one of the chiefs happening to pass asked the girl if she was not the wife of the enemy of horses. She answered that she was. I thought so, he said, because you are such a pretty little squaw. But you have no husband now. He was shot through the head in the fort and instantly killed, and here you are, playing with sticks. The poor thing, together with her mother, screamed out at the intelligence and seizing a battle axe, each cut off a finger. The girl then stabbed her forehead with a knife and was instantly dripping with blood. The chief came laughing to me and said, That little wife of yours loves you better than any of your other wives. How do you know? I inquired. Because I told them all you were dead, and she was the only one that cut off a finger. And he laughed aloud as he passed on. Soon, however, she climbed the wall and forced her way into the fort, and came directly to me. She presented a sickening spectacle, and was covered entirely with blood. Seeing me, she burst into tears, and as soon as she could articulate, said, Why, you are not dead after all! Albert told me you were killed! And I came to seek your body. "'Who are you mourning for?' I asked. "'Is your brother or father scalped?' "'No, I mourned because I thought you were killed. Albert told me you were—' "'You must not believe all you hear,' I said. "'Some Indians have crooked tongues. "'But come and spread your robe, "'and carry this gun in spoils of my first victim to the village.' and there, wash your face and bind up your finger." She did as I directed her, and departed. As soon as we had collected all the trophies bequeathed us by our fallen foes and gathered all our own dead, we moved back to the new camp. On our way, I exerted myself to the utmost to console the afflicted mourners. I told them that their friends were happy in the spirit land, where there were no enemies to fight, where all was everlasting contentment, and where they were happy in endless amusement. I said that in a few days I would avenge the fall of our warriors, and depart for that peaceful land myself. I could plainly see that this last promise afforded them more satisfaction than all my other consoling remarks. But I disliked to see their horrid fashion of mourning, and my promise of future victory speedily washed their faces of their present grief. For a promise for me was confided in by all the tribe. There was, of course, no dancing, for we had lost too many warriors but in the evening there was great visiting throughout the village, to talk over the events of the day and hear the statements of those who had taken part in the battle. Longhair came to the lodge of my father to congratulate me on my great feat in scaling the wall and to talk of the victory of his people achieved through my valor. All who were present related the deeds they had performed. As each narrated his exploits, all listened with profound attention. While this was going on, my little wife, who sat nearby, crawled behind me and whispering in my ear inquired if I had obtained any coups. These coups she inquired after are the same as counts in a game of billiards. The death of one warrior counts as one of two warriors counts as two. Every battle-axe or gun taken counts one to the victor's merit. I said I had not, at which she looked aghast. But when the question was put to me by the chief shortly after, I answered, eleven. On this she administered eleven taps on my back with her finger, and again whispered, ah, I thought your tongue was crooked when you told me you had no All the coups are registered in the Great Medicine Lodge in favor of the brave who wins them. I trust that the reader does not suppose that I waded through these scenes of carnage and desolation without some serious reflections on the matter. Disgusted at the repeated acts of cruelty I witnessed, I often resolved to leave these wild children of the forest and return to civilized life. But before I could act upon my decision, another scene of strife would occur, and the enemy of horses was always the first sought for by the tribe. I had been uniformly successful so far, and how I had escaped while scores of warriors had been stricken down at my side was more than I could understand. I was well aware that many of my friends knew of the life I was leading and I almost feared to think of the opinions they must form of my character. But, in justification, it may be urged that the crows had never shed the blood of the white man during my stay in their camp, and I did not intend they ever should if I could raise a voice to prevent it. They were constantly at war with tribes who coveted the scalps of the white man, but the crows were uniformly faithful in their obligations to my race and would rather serve than injure their white brethren without any consideration of profit in addition to this self-interest would whisper her counsel i knew i could acquire the riches of croesus if i could but dispose of the valuable stock of peltry i had the means of accumulating I required but an object in view to turn the attention of the Indians to the thousands of traps that were laid by to rust. I would occasionally use arguments to turn them from their unprofitable life and engage them in peaceful industry. But I found the Indian would be Indian still, in spite of my efforts to improve him. They would answer, our enemies steal our horses we must fight and get them back again or steal in turn without horses we can make no surrounds nor could we to protect our lives fight our foes when they attack our villages of course these arguments were unanswerable so long as they were surrounded with enemies they must be prepared to defend themselves The large majority of Indian troubles arise from their unrestrained appropriation of each other's horses. It is their only branch of wealth. Like the miser with his gold, their greed for horses cannot be satisfied. All their other wants are merely attended to from day to day. Their needs supplied, they look no farther. But their appetite for horses is insatiable. They are ever demanding more. Mildrum and myself had a long conversation on the subject while he was smarting with the injury he received in leaping from the fort. He would say, Beckworth, I am pretty well used to this Indian life. There is a great deal in it that charms me. But when I think of my old Kentucky home, of father, mother, and other friends whom I tenderly love, and with whom I could be so happy, I wonder at the vagabond spirit that holds me here among these savages, fighting their battles and risking my life and scalp, which I fairly suppose exceeds in value ten thousand of these bloodthirsty heathen. How, in the name of all that is sacred, can we reconcile ourselves to it? Why don't we leave them? The medicine man held a council and resolved to remove the village. The great spirit was displeased with the spot and had therefore suffered all our warriors to be killed. We accordingly pulled up stakes and moved a short distance farther. While we were busy moving, my little squaw angered me and I drove her away. She not daring to disobey me, i saw no more of her until she supposed my anger was appeased she then came to the lodge while i was conversing with my brothers and putting her childish head into the door said humbly i know you're angry with me but i want you to come and stay at our lodge tonight we are outside the village and my father and mother are afraid yes said my brother She has no ears now. She is but a child. She will have ears when she grows older. You had better go and protect the old people. I told her to run home, and I would soon follow. I went to the lodge accordingly. In the night, I heard the snorting of horses, which were tied near the lodge door. I crept softly out and looked carefully around, I then crawled, without the least noise, out of the lodge and caught sight of an Indian, who I knew was there for no good purpose. He was using the utmost precaution. He had a sharp-pointed stick with which he raised the leaves that lay in his way, so that his feet might not crush them, and thus alarm the inmates of the lodge. Every step brought him nearer to the animals, who, with necks curved and ears erect, gave an occasional snort at the approach of the Indian. This would bring him to a halt. Then again he would bring his stick into action and prepare a place for another step, not mistrusting that he was approaching the threshold of death. The ropes were tied close to the lodge door, and to untie them he must approach within six feet of where i lay on the ground i let him advance as near as i thought safe when with one bound i grappled him and gave the war-hoop he was the hardest to hold that ever i had my arms around but i had both his arms pinned in my embrace round his lithe and nimble body and he could not release one so as to draw his knife instantly we were surrounded with fifty armed warriors and when I saw a sufficient breastwork round about, I released my hold and stepped back. He was riddled with bullets in an instant and fell without a cry. His scalp sufficed to wash off the morning paint from every face in the village and all was turned into mirth, although this general change in feeling did not restore the dismembered fingers or heal their voluntary wounds. Greater than ever was the enemy of horses, and I received a still more ennobling appellation, Shash Ka Oh Hush Ah, the Bob-tail Horse. The village exhausted itself in showing its admiration of my exploit, and my single scalp was greeted with as much honor as if I had slaughtered a hundred of the enemy. End of chapter fourteen.